can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In your pew Bible on page 877, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes its purposes. We trust you for that. We pray that that would be so this morning, that you would do good things in our hearts. You would teach us, that you would train us, that you would change us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you've heard of a tale of two cities. This is a parable of a tale of two men. Two hearts, two worldviews, and two very different destinies. It ends with one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith when Jesus tells us everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the peculiar sort of calculus of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you knew, but humility is actually uh, very popular right now. I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek. What I mean is this. The New York Times Magazine put it this way recently. We are living in humbling times. People are humbled all over the place. Lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, etc., etc., this is especially common on social media. The idea is this. If you say that you are humbled when something good happens to you, then you are signaling that you don't think very highly of yourself. It's a way to simultaneously say, I'm nothing special, but look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I have. It's a way to simultaneously do this with one hand, but be doing this with the other hand. There's actually a word for this. It is called the humble brag. It's when you use humility as a delivery vehicle or a sort of Trojan horse for your brag. Let me give you an example. If I stood here and I said, I am humbled to inform you that RUF has named me 2017's Campus Minister of the Year. That would be a humble brag. There is no such award in RUF. But I'm humbled to inform you, if there was, I would win it. (laughs) 
The humble brag is the life philosophy of the first man we meet in this parable, of the Pharisee. But before we dive in here, a quick word on parables. I know that Tim did a parable series, I believe, last year. So I don't want to tell you uh, things that you already know, but three quick things about parables. First, parables say something true. That may seem obvious to you if you're a Christian, but I would say uh, culturally, Uh, Most people think of parables as sort of good advice. But like all of Scripture, parables say something profound about the human condition and about the God who meets us in our human condition. Second, parables are complex. I don't mean that they are confusing. That's something different. What I mean is that even the shortest and simplest of parables have multiple layers and multiple angles. That's why there are scholars who devote their whole lives to uh, parabolic study and theory. So we should avoid treating them as just quaint stories or simple illustrations. And we should also avoid moving quickly to the sort of point of the parable, to the big idea, the moral of the story. And we should also avoid acting as if, because we've got the gist of a parable, that we understand it. All of those are ways to short-circuit a parable. Instead, and third in this sort of quick parable lesson, parables invite you in. They invite you in. In other words, we should treat them less like an illustration and more like a work of art. What do you do with a work of art? You stare at it. You ask it questions. You absorb its nuances and you ponder over it. That's why Kenneth Bailey, who is a well-known parable scholar, uh, he actually lived in the Middle East for many years, and because of that he understands a little better some of the cultural nuances to these stories. He says, a parable is an extended metaphor. It is not a delivery system for an idea, but a house in which the reader or listener is invited to take up residence. Parables invite you in. In other words, when you hear a parable, go live in it. Go sit down, go make a cup of tea, look out the windows, live in it. This actually takes some mental discipline, by the way. It's much easier to look at a parable and say quickly, oh yeah, Jesus wants me to be humble, therefore I should try harder to be humble. But that would be like taking a beautiful sculpture and hammering a nail with it. You may get the nail hammered, but you have lost sight of the purpose, the essence of the thing. So that's our quick parable lesson. So two men walk into a temple to pray. Jesus holds the spotlight first on the Pharisee. We should note that he is telling this parable to actual Pharisees. And of the one in the story, he says this. Standing by himself, he prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What sort of person is this man? Well, if you've heard enough sermons, you read enough in the Gospels, then you know that Pharisees are uh, Jesus' sort of arch rivals. Uh, He takes a lot of shots at them. And because of that, you may have even come to the conclusion that Pharisees were particularly bad guys. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. 
In fact, I believe, actually, what the Pharisee is saying here. Let's run down the list. He does not take money that isn't his. He does not perpetuate injustice. He has one wife that he is faithful to. He fasts. He tithes. In other words, he is an objectively better person than many of the people around him. See, this is part of the mental discipline of the parable. You know that Jesus says at the end that he is unjustified. You know that Jesus often talks about the Pharisees as hypocrites, but don't go there quite yet. Stay, live in the house for a little while. Maybe think of it this way. This man is very well-kempt. You've seen him do many kind and selfless things around town. He's solid. He's dependable. If you're a man, you want him as your friend or maybe your pastor. If you're a woman, you might want him as your husband or your father. If you're a church member, you want him as a member in your church with you. And yet something is missing here. And it becomes very obvious when Jesus turns the spotlight on the other man. Verse 13, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What sort of man is this second guy? Maybe you've seen him around as well. He has a poor reputation. He's not normally seen in the temple. He seems kind of awkward and out of place there. He's a tax collector. So he's kind of like the honey badger. He takes what he wants. Unlike the Pharisee, he is an extortioner. He is unjust. He might not be an actual adulterer, but either way, he has committed a sort of national adultery on Israel by collaborating with the Romans. And far from fasting, he indulges in all the food that he wants. Far from tithing, he actually takes money from the people of God. If you think Jesus is hard on the Pharisees in Scripture, you would be right. But consider this. In Matthew 18, he says the last stage of church discipline is to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector. In Matthew 5, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't the tax collectors doing that? And in more than one place in Scripture, we hear the phrase, sinners and tax collectors. They're not a separate category of sinners. They are the arch category of sinners. So what is this man doing in the temple? Well, he's doing something very surprising. He is standing far off in the shadows, and he is beating his breast, and he is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's ashamed of his sins. He's despairing of himself. See, we tend to avoid shame and despair. This man seems to be leaning into it. He seems to be taking it to God because God can do something about it. This is one of the clearest, one of the most poignant pictures of repentance in all of Scripture. Don't mix it up with depression. It's not the same thing. As Ed Welch has said, the misery of depression is in its apathy. But confession is not apathy. Because confession itself is a sign of life. Now this isn't depression, this is humility. Humility. How do we know? Well, humility is a, a strange thing. It is a sort of indirect quality. 
In other words, the more you talk about it, the less humble you actually are. It is self-defeating in that way. To me, humility is like nicknames. You can't give yourself a nickname. George Costanza tried in an episode of Seinfeld. He decided that the name George didn't have the pop or the zip that he wanted, and that he would instead be called T-Bone, which is a good nickname if you can get it. In the end, George does not get it. Neil Watkins from Accounting does. He becomes T-Bone. The joke being, you cannot give yourself a nickname. And it's also true that you cannot declare yourself to be humble. That is the Pharisee's problem, that he's trying to declare himself humble. We see it right here in his prayer. William Hendrickson points out, he says, Outwardly, he addresses God, but inwardly and actually, the man is talking about himself to himself. He says God once, and then he says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Do you ever do that? I know that I do. You ever have these conversations with yourself, telling yourself things that you deserve, reasons that you are right. Maybe even you defend yourself against phantom challengers on certain points. Maybe you bring it to God and you pray thus, Oh God, I am so humbled by all the ways that you have blessed me. I would never have dreamed that I would be so successful. Or we can make it sound really good. God, I am so thankful that you chose me. I'm so thankful that I understand the doctrines of grace that so many other people don't understand. See, these are subtle ways to trust your own righteousness, subtle ways to make yourself the star of your own show. And notice what the Pharisee does not say. He doesn't pray, God, I thank you that I love your word more, that your mercy is overwhelming me. I thank you that I'm becoming more loving and more patient. Now, everything that the Pharisee names is an outward element. And at least one of those things, fasting twice a week, is not even something that God commands. Meanwhile, the tax collector beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a completely different prayer. There's no outward element to that. It's only him and God. There's no social payoff to it. It's the most basic cry of the Christian heart, what he's saying. We listen uh, when a baby comes out, when a baby is born, we listen for their cry. Well, this is the most basic cry of a baby Christian. It's the sound of the new birth. A picture of a child of God being delivered from darkness into light. And now is a good time to ask yourself if you have cried out in that way. If you have that heart disposition, we don't all have uh, dramatic conversions as this one seems to be. Uh, Some of us grew up in a Christian home. Some of us get the sort of sunrise conversion instead of the light switch conversion. But 
C.S. Lewis talked about the church universal. He said, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible is an army with banners. What binds an organization like that together? It is this confession. All Christians everywhere throughout time have said in their hearts, God be merciful to me, a sinner. See, there's a sort of reverse self-centeredness here. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector has singled himself out. In fact, there are many ways the two are alike. In fact, I would argue that they enter the temple for the same purpose. They want the same thing. They want to be declared righteous. They want to be justified, as Jesus talks about in verse 14. It's one of the most important words in the Bible. Justified. Justification is to be pardoned of your sins, to be accepted as righteous in God's sight, not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness imputed to you by Jesus Christ, by faith alone. It's an act, a declaration of God's free grace, the Shorter Catechism tells us, but not everyone has it. And in fact, without God's grace, no one has it. And that's why there's tension there. There's a sort of problem here. Uh, Tim Keller calls it a, a universal problem, the problem of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, theologically, it means that we are sinful, lawless creatures, that we stand condemned before God, that we have no righteousness to call our own. More uh, generally speaking, the problem of righteousness is this, that we are all trying to pass. We are all trying to be approved, that we all want and seek the verdict. That's what's underneath and behind this story, why these two men entered the temple. They wanted a verdict. Arthur Miller's play, After the Fall, got this too from Tim Keller. Quentin, the character, uh, says this. He says, you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what. I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. The litigation of existence. These are these conversations that you have, these arguments you have in your own minds, where you're trying to prove that you are worthy that you're okay, that you're approved. It's what we all want. It's one of the reasons I think it is so strange that the doctrine of God's judgment is one of the least popular of all Christian doctrines. It's ironic that the world hates this idea of an all-knowing, all-powerful God looking at you and judging you. The world hates it, and yet they're desperate for that very thing and we are too if you look at celebrities if you look at social media if you look at your neighbor your family your friends if you look in your own heart it's clear that we are all desperately crying out approve me 
Tell me that I'm okay. Tell me that I'm righteous. See, this presents a major problem if you are not a Christian. Where is righteousness to be found? If God isn't on the bench, then you have to rely on someone somewhere to give you approval. That's why I see uh, all the time with my students that they're bending over backwards to perform for their professors, for their parents, for their peers, for the sort of vast, uh, shapeless blob of social media, and even for themselves. And that last one is very interesting, right? Because we all wonder if maybe we can just uh, pronounce ourselves approved. If we can put the verdict on us that says we are okay, we're justified. I would argue no. Like humility, like nicknames, you cannot give yourself a verdict. But people try. Very often, I saw um, on a uh, Humans of New York thing the other night, this is... um, Uh, sort of vignettes of uh, people that are met on the street in New York. They do these little interviews, and uh, there was an elderly lady. She was dressed uh, very well, and she said this. She said, I praise myself because I love me better than anybody in the world. When you do that, life just embraces you. If I love me better than anybody else, I'm going to look out for me, number one. Then I can help you. But I come first. Nobody comes first but me. Then you come second. That is chilling, isn't it? But at least she's being honest, right? That video has 1.6 million views. It has 8,000 likes. And I think that that is literal evil. It is evil to not care at all what anybody else says to be only about yourself. Some people want to call that the sort of oxygen mask view of life. you got to put your own on. You have to be okay before you can help anyone else. And I don't believe it. In fact, I think that uh, even if you could approve yourself, that even if you could be universally approved by the people around you, that you would still be miserable. I think Elvis and Michael Jackson and some other people who seem to have everyone else's devotion were nevertheless miserable. I think that they would agree with me. So we actually need God on the bench. We actually need God with the gavel in his hand. And more than anything, we need somebody else's righteousness. What Luther called an alien righteousness. We need Jesus' righteousness. His is the only kind of righteousness that is pure and clean. Ours is always mixed in with our own sin, with our own shortcomings. But Jesus' righteousness is perfect. The righteousness of Christ is so powerful. It's so all-consuming that it could save even this tax collector whose life was wrong in so many different ways. If it could save this tax collector, I'm convinced that it can save me, that it can save you, that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that powerful. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. In other words, the key to the parable is the key to the kingdom of God. This upside down kingdom is a kingdom that you have to enter on your knees. Where everyone is covered by dust when they come into it. Because real humility is never to say that you are humbled. Real humility is to say that you're a sinner. To put yourself in that category. To self-identify as a sinner. And to be driven into the presence of God so that you can cry out for mercy and receive it in Jesus Christ. See, the Pharisee drags with him into the temple this sack of all of the good things that he has done and all of the ways that he is right. But the tax collector can only drag himself into the temple. It reminds us of the old hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Remember Christ's last word here is exalted. So you may enter the kingdom on your knees. You may enter covered in dust, but you won't stay that way very long because Jesus will wash you clean. He will clothe you in white linen and you will be lifted up so that you can worship God. You can worship Jesus himself, the lamb, for all eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for the goodness of your word. We thank you that it teaches us things that we would never uh, understand ourselves, that we would never uh, understand unless you had come uh, and and given us the truth uh, from outside of ourselves and shown us that truly uh, we are sinners in need of your mercy, in need of your grace. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would press that truth deep into our hearts that we might depend on Jesus Christ more and more. We might repent and find ourselves uh, by faith in you and in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.